before Doug. <laughs> it's great to gather here together on this uh, morning and uh, opportunity that we have to worship the Lord in just a variety of different ways. And now we have the opportunity to worship the Lord around his word. One of the things that I would encourage you to do uh, is uh, on your own this week, read the scriptures that are under the title of the text and also that come under each of the points that are in the bulletin in the sermon notes. Um, uh, I won't be reading them all, or I will, but I won't be reading them together with you, and that will enable you to just make sure that uh, what I'm saying makes sense and ties with Scripture. Um, this morning, we are going to continue our uh, short series on God is Real, and that changes everything, and we've shifted gears uh, a little bit, and it will make sense to you uh, in a couple of moments how we've uh, shifted gears. I was thinking this past week about gravity. Uh, gravity, from the Latin word gravitas, means weight. And as we know, and I'm not a scientist at all, but as we know, uh, gravity is a predictive force that acts on all matter in our universe. There is nothing outside of its effect. Here on Earth, we experience it every single day because gravity gives weight to physical objects, ourselves included. It pulls objects down towards the center of our Earth. So every time you jump, and we might not have done a lot of jumping japs this week, but every time you jump, you feel the effects of gravity. It pulls you back down to the ground. Without gravity, every one of us would float off into space. We see gravity at work every time we drop a cup or a book, when we step on a scale or toss a ball with our grandchildren. Gravity is such a constant pressure in our lives, and yet I think we seldom sit back and marvel at the mystery of this force or law. We take it for granted. And many times we can go weeks, even months, without ever thinking of the reality of our existence with gravity. As I was thinking about that, gravity can be like the existence of God. As gravity is a predictable force that acts on all matter in our universe, even in a much greater way, in a more complete way, the reality of God acts on everything that he has created in the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Now, I understand ever so basically there are different explanations for gravity. Some understand it as force. Some understand it as a distortion in the shape of space-time. I don't have the brain power to determine which one of those is right or if it's a different option. But I do know when it comes to gravity, what goes up must come down. And I do know that the existence of God changes everything. So, we are subject to gravity, whether we think about it or not. Gravity impacts every nanosecond of our life, whether we believe in its existence or not. And we might even say, the fool says in his heart, there is no gravity. How much more secure, though, are our lives when we understand the reality of gravity and seek to live our lives within its influence? So, too, we are subject to God whether we think about him or not. He impacts every nanosecond of our lives, past, present, and future, whether we believe in his existence or not. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. How much more sense 
would we make of our lives if we would acknowledge the reality of God and put our faith in him? And so we come back to this declaration that we've been working with. God is real, and that changes everything. And for this week and possibly next, I want to add the tagline to that. Um, God is real. That changes everything for everyone. Because even if you don't believe in the existence of God, he exerts an influence on your life day to day. Much like gravity is real, however you understand it, and it affects how you choose, whether you choose to deny its existence or not, so too God is real, whether you believe that he exists or not. And so in the context then of this reality, I want to ask the question, how? How does the existence of God, whether we believe in him or not, impact our day-to-day existence? There's a few scriptures that I want to read that help me at least begin to shape my thoughts on this, and then three things I want to say very briefly about this. The first is from Psalm 33, 13 to 15. Beautiful psalm, but in particular, these few verses. The Lord looks down from heaven, and he sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. There is a declaration about God's observation of and knowledge of every single creature and human being that he has made. He looks down from heaven and he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. And then Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. No creature is hidden from him. And then he goes on and he says, But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There is not a single creature, including human beings, that are hidden from God. And then the last, it's a little bit of a longer reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 23 to 28. It's Paul as he comes to a particular place in Corinth, Mars Hill. He says, I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And then listen carefully. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, Whether you believe in his existence or not, the declaration is he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps find their way to him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own prophets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Father, as we come to our time together in your word, I pray that some of these realities that we have read and pointed out will have greater weight in our lives today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want to say, three really brief sort of points. 
Your non-belief in God does not change his kindness and care towards you. Your non-belief in God does not change his kindness and care towards you. I want to open that up just a little bit in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 to 45. Jesus reveals something of the love of God to all mankind, regardless of their acknowledgement of him. For he makes his son to rise on evil ones and on good ones, and sends rain on just ones and unjust ones. You see, for one thing, Jesus is here making a comment about the general provision of God for all creation, for all humanity. Everything that he has made, he provides for. Good ones and evil ones, just ones and unjust ones. As we know, the sun does not exclusively rise on good people, nor does the rain pass over unjust people. God's love and care for humanity rests on all of humanity, regardless of how they treat him or what they think of him. It's fascinating in this verse, lots of things that jumped out to me, but notice that the sun does not rise naturally. It says that he makes the sun to rise. Daily, God is involved in this world, maintaining this world in its existence, and he makes the sun to rise every single day. And not only does he make the sun to rise, an intentional daily volitional act, but God sends the rain. God commands the rain. He has the storehouses of rain, and he commands the rain to come. Here we read or understand as Jesus is speaking of God's intimate involvement in our world. What can be more intimate than making the sun to rise and sending the rain on this world. The point being that God does not limit his acts of goodness and kindness to those who acknowledge him and cut it off from those who don't. So again, your denial of the existence of God does not limit or cut you off from the care and the provision of God in your life. It's really significant to me as I, I thought about this, and the first time I ever noticed it, that in the Greek, it does not have the article before evil ones or good ones and before just ones and unjust ones. There's no categories. Jesus doesn't in categories. He simply says God causes the sun to rise on good people and bad people, not the good people and the evil people. And God makes the rain to come on just and unjust alike. And I think that is an important distinction to make because we are never closer to evil than when we think the line between good and evil passes between groups and not through each human heart. I was rereading a comment that I read uh, years ago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's a famous uh, comment of his and it was contained in his writings that were smuggled out during his imprisonment in the Russian gulags. And he said in one of these lines in the, in the gulag, he said, the line between good and evil runs right through the middle of every human heart. 
and how quickly we are to say, well, I'm not an evil one or I'm not an unjust one. And it's just a sort of an insignificant point, and yet I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus is not categorizing humanity as in here are the evil ones and here are the good ones. Because we are so close to good and evil every day in our own lives. And he simply says God cares for all of his creation. And the Apostle Paul says here in Acts chapter 17, as he's talking to a group of people of, uh, um, steeped in idolatry, he says, the God who made the world in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands, nor does he need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, this takes us back to the origins that we talked about a little bit earlier. The God who made the world and everything in it, he himself gives life to and breath and everything to all he has made. Remember Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God, what? created the heavens and the earth. That God who created the heavens and the earth gives life and breath and everything to everyone he has created. Again, so even though you don't acknowledge the existence of God, you owe your very existence to him, your very sustenance in this world to him. He gives you life. He gives you breath. He gives you everything that you have. Your very existence comes from him, whether you acknowledge him or not. And right now, this very moment, he is giving you breath in your lungs. He is the one that gives you a life on Vancouver Island. He is the one that has given everything that you own and everything that you have because he has so loved this world. And finally, to sustain the point further again, in the context of a man who disregarded God, Daniel chapter 5 re counts the drunken feast of a king, Belshazzar. A drunken feast that he held for a thousand of his lords. And because of his blatant disregard for God and his defiant unwillingness to acknowledge what God had done in the life of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, and he denied the existence of God, God dealt with him severely. And after recounting all the details of God's dealings with his father, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says to Belshazzar, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself even though you knew all of this. We've talked about that, haven't we? The evidence for God is profound. It is everywhere. And we don't humble ourselves even in the light of that revelation of God to us. He says, even though you knew all of this, instead you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which you which don't see or hear or understand. And then this, but you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. There is God speaking to a pagan king through his prophet, telling him, that he owes his very existence to the one who holds his life breath in his hand and controls every aspect of his life. This is how the existence of God affects you whether or not you believe he exists. As creator, he gives you life and breath and good gifts indiscriminately to every creature he has made. The second point is that your non-belief in the existence of God does not change his heart towards you. 
I sat on this for quite a while, just amazed at this. Your non-belief in the existence of God does not change his heart towards you. Some are just simply defiant towards any notion of the existence of God and against all the ways that God has made himself known to him, they still refuse to acknowledge him. But others are less defiant in their attitude and have convinced themselves that God has favorites or that God is harsh or that God is inaccessible or God is hard to find or God is unloving. I want to say as clearly as I can today that God's heart is for all humankind. He loves the world and those who are in it. In Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, God is calling the church to pray. And he's calling us to pray for, uh, he says, uh, to pray for all people, including those in authority over us. Why? Why does God urge the people of God to pray for all people, including those in authority over us? Well, one, he says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then this, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This is God's longing. This is his heart for all humanity. His desire for all people to be saved, to be delivered from sin and estrangement from him, to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, simply the basic truth, even the truth of his existence. Certainly we could say that at the top of that list is just that, that they would come to acknowledge that God has made himself known. Not only has God worked in such a way to demonstrate his love for you, but he calls Christians all around the world to pray for you who refuse to acknowledge his existence, that you might come to him and be saved. Another place God spoke to a prophet, Ezekiel, in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating explanation of the uh, heart of God and his forgiveness and his reconciliation. And at the end of the chapter, God, through the prophet, urges all the people, he says, throw off all the transgressions you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the heart of God for mankind. And then at the very end of Ezekiel 18, it says, so repent and live. God is not hiding. God is not against you. God is making himself known to you. He's expressing a longing and a heart for you. He has deep compassion towards you. Your indifference to God has not only been met with sincere words, but with significant actions. As Paul explains again the connection, he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. See, God has made you. God has placed you in a specific time and place in history, even down to the very fact that you are here today so that you might have the best opportunity 
to feel your way towards him, to find your way back to your creator. And he is actually not far from any of us right now. And we say, well, how? Really? Really? God's not far from you? Yes, really, because God is holding your life breath in his hands. That is how much he cares for you, how much he's involved in your life. He made himself known to you in creation as you drove here, as you looked at the mountains, as you saw the rain come down, as you looked at the trees which reveal the magnificent power and might and imagination of God. He made himself known to you as you drove here today. And he's making himself known to you in the singing and the preaching and the praying of his word. And of course, God's greatest act of love towards all mankind, towards all humankind, is sending Jesus Christ into the world. We blast over John 3.16 so quickly, don't we? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever, without distinction, without discrimination, whoever would believe in him, the just, the unjust, the evil, the good, whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. This is how the existence of God affects you, whether or not you acknowledge it. He has made himself known to you. He sustains you. He has demonstrated his love towards you. He has not abandoned you. His love for you is evident in his provision and care. And thirdly, your non-belief in the existence of God does not change his judgment towards you. See, God has made and created a world, and he has made himself known in and that world. As we've looked at a few weeks ago, he's put his law into the hearts of all mankind, so we are under it, so that every mouth may be stopped, and so that the whole world, there it is, the whole world may be accountable to God. This is a really critical point. Because your non-belief in the existence of God has no impact on the reality of the existence of God. And it is very unwise for you to say to yourself, as, as the Bible describes those who deny the existence of God, there is no accountability since God doesn't exist. You, as is every other human being that has ever been created, will be held accountable to God. And probably one of the most significant, awe-inspiring events that will take place in all of the universe will take place at the end of this age. And it's called the Great White Throne Judgment. It's comprehensive, it's universal, and this is how John describes it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life and the books of works 
Those whose names are written in the book of life are there because of the work of another, Jesus Christ. Those whose names are in the books of works are there based on their own actions and words. According to what they had done. God is real. That changes everything for everyone. Everything is noted in those books. Everything you have done, everything you have said. You see, we all long for justice and equity. It doesn't matter whether we believe in the existence or not. We all long for justice and equity. The trouble is we often just long for it for other people, but not for ourselves. But in the goodness and the mercy and the righteousness of God, he says, no, every one of us will experience pure, perfect justice and equity. Even in the face, though, of, of this judgment, the love of God is manifest because Paul says to these Gentiles who are on Mars Hill, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He gives an opportunity for everyone in whose breath he holds in their hands. He gives to everyone the opportunity to repent. He commands people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. A fixed day, an unavoidable day, but the outcome of that day will affect the eternity of our lives. And so Paul's urging to those people is turn from your ignorance, turn from your unbelief. Put your faith in the living God and live. Again, this is how the existence of God affects you, whether or not you believe he exists, because he is your creator. And one day we will all stand before him and give an account of our life. Again, why is it that God is the judge of the whole earth? Well, it goes back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's all his. He owns it. He provides for it. He guides it, but it's his, and he is the one that sets the boundaries. He's the one that sets the laws by which we are to govern our lives. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And so the love of God is shown in significant ways how he has revealed himself to us. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. So as we wrap it up, I was thinking again of the statement the fool says in his heart there is no God on August 7th 1961 a 26 year old Soviet cosmonaut and I'll never get his name right I tried it Herman Titov became the second Soviet cosmonaut to experience the earth and return safely Sometime later, he recounted his experience of circling around the earth at a world's fair, and in triumphant tones, he declared, Some people say there is a God out there. But in my travels around the earth all day long, I looked around and I didn't see him. I saw no God, nor angels. Somebody humorously quipped. Of course, had Titov climbed out of his craft without his spacesuit on, he would have quickly met God. But according to the Bible, Titoff was a fool. We're not talking here about a simpleton. You've got to be pretty bright to ever attain the title astronaut. But biblically, fool does not describe one of mental incompetence. Rather, it defines a person 
of moral insensitivity and spiritual incompetence. It's a person who is morally deficient or not mentally deficient. It's a synonym for a sinner and describes everyone who has no place for God in his or her life. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then the psalmist goes on, they are corrupt. There's moral bankruptcy. They do abominable deeds. There is disobedient lives. There is no one who does good. There is no exceptions to that. In other words, at the very heart of his being, in the depths of his soul, he or she rejects the knowledge of God. I suspect that some of you may be here today are saying in your hearts, and some have said it to my face, you're nuts, Paul. I'm offended that you would call me a fool, that you would put me in the same category as those described in Psalm 10 or even Psalm 14. I may not believe in the existence of God, you say, but I'm certainly not a bad person. These are God's words, not mine. And the truth of Psalm 14.1 refers to anyone who says in their heart that God does not exist. Again, your non-belief in the existence of God does not negate his existence. His goodness is daily poured out on you. His heart is for you, desiring your well-being and your spiritual good. And his judgment against you is just and fair. Father, we thank you for your words today as we continue to wrestle around with your reality. And I pray that your spirit would be at work even here this morning. Opening eyes that have been blinded by the evil one. Softening hearts that have been hardened by years of refusal to acknowledge your existence. God, would you be merciful yet again to us. Spirit of God, would you work graciously in us. Son of God, thank you for your work on the cross that gives us a path back to the Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name.